Here's a little bit from today's episode of Business Lunch. When you're the hub, when you're the center of your business and everything feeds off of you, every decision that's made, and all of a sudden your CEO wants you out and go stay in the visionary box and don't be in the trenches and all of a sudden all these decisions are being made without your involvement, I got like myself, I, ha I have to challenge myself. I have to fight myself on this tendency to want to get involved because I feel like the result would be better if I was a part of it. So yeah, it's just been a process to, to, to hand over those reins and to, to stay in my lane. At the end of the day, the best things I can do for the company is do what I'm supposed to do in that founder visionary box. And that's it. But right. it's just, it just, it hasn't been easy. It hasn't, it, right. it, you, you, you know, it was my business. It was my baby. It was my identity. I was the hub. I was the practitioner for 20 years. And just to pull yourself out of that, it's, it's there, there's, there's, you know, there's challenges to it, but I'm committed to, to, to doing what's right for the business. You're listening to Business Lunch with Roland Frazier. This is your seat at the table. Hey, Business Lunch listeners. If you want to scale your business, you have to know what's working and what's broken. And to date, Ryan and Roland have started 13 companies from scratch. They've funded a dozen more and directly advised hundreds of CEOs and entrepreneurs on how to grow and scale their companies. And over the years, they've identified the eight key domains that allow a business to scale to eight figures and beyond. And they use those eight areas to help entrepreneurs and CEOs find their current strengths and weaknesses and understand the constraints that are getting in the way of them scaling. So if you want a quick and accurate look at what areas you can improve to scale your business faster, go and take our scalability assessment. It's an assessment that'll show you exactly where you need to focus to scale your business and achieve even your loftiest goals. In just five minutes, you'll know your exact scale constraints and you'll get instant actionable steps on how to improve your business. So go to businesslunchpodcast.com slash score to take the free assessment. One more time, it's businesslunchpodcast.com slash score. Hey, everybody. Roland Frazier with Business Lunch here on an interview episode. And I'm excited today to have somebody that was referred to me by my friend Brad Costanza, who's also been a guest here on uh, Business Lunch. And it is Cody Bugen with Vestrite. Cody, welcome to the show. Oh man, Roland, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. <laughs> so I went, I, I like, like rather than reading some canned intro, I kind of like to just figure out a little bit about what the entrepreneurial journey is. So tell us, like, I know now you do quite a bit of real estate development of raw land and entitlements and then flip those out to um, bigger companies. And you've got a course that teaches people how to do that and stuff like that. Tell us where the, the Cody Bugen story started entrepreneurial. <laughs> it started, you know, I, I, I've, Tried to really nail down when it first started and I've pinned it down to when, and I didn't know what that even meant back when it happened, right? But I was 12 years old, I remember, and I used to love to collect sports cards. Ooh. And hopefully um, you kept them because daggone, they're worth a lot now. <laughs> I do have a lot of them still. I have actually, I have uh, bins of them. But back then, I grew up in just a small little town called Damascus, Oregon, and they used to have a flea market every weekend in this small little town with one streetlight. And I used to go down there on the weekends, and it was minimal, a few bucks to to be able to get a little section, right? And 
And I went down there and I used to set up a booth and I used to buy and sell and trade sports cards. And man, I remember loving it. I remember it turning my juices. And yeah, so I would say that's definitely probably where it started. And were your parents were your parents or somebody in your family entrepreneurial or did this just kind of just just was something that seemed like the right thing to do? So I would say the entrepreneurial spirit started with my grandfather. He he was a home builder, land developer, much okay. like myself. I mean, he passed away when I was like 15. So unfortunately, I didn't I wasn't able to rub elbows with him as much as I would have liked, but I still pull inspiration from him. That's actually his picture behind me, you know, is, is I pull inspiration from the things that he accomplished. And that's actually the clock next to it was the clock that the HBA, the Home Builders Association gave to him because he was the president of the HBA. So, so I would say that's where the spirit started. My father, he had, he had the spirit, but didn't have the, the mindset to be, to, to, to be very successful as an entrepreneur, but uh, he definitely was a hard worker, driven. Self-employment was his was his his preference. But uh, you know, he got hurt in the early '80s, and and then he he could just never get back to self-employment. He could never pull the trigger again. And um, I didn't even realize I was learning that when I watched it. I mean, when I watched my father never get back there again, as I was growing up, I definitely was able to, without even realizing it again. I had, I had programmed myself to when failure happens to not let what he's done happen mm -hmm. to me. Right. Right. Where you just give up. Yeah. And so, but yeah, I'd say I grew up in it. You know, it's in my blood for sure. That's really cool. And, and so from the, I, I, I like to ask that question because I think it's interesting how entrepreneurs come from kind of nothing. It's like, it seems yeah. like you kind of are born with it. Maybe there's something that activates it, but it, it's, you either have that or you don't. I don't see a lot of people that, that discover they're an entrepreneur really late in life. It just yeah. seems like there's always that, that early on kind of thing. So you're, you're buying and selling cards. You got a little booth. What happens next? So after, you know, from there, what I did is when I turned 15, I bought my first car for 800 bucks. And I did it just fixer? with that. What was that? Was it a fixer? Oh yeah, it's definitely a fixer. But you know, I and I did that by like I, I sold. You know, I had a little bit of money, but I think I sold like my my RC cars and stuff. And and I went and bought my first car. And and so what happened is through high school, that was that was my thing. I bought and sold mm -hmm. cars, and uh, you know would put some lipstick on them and turn them and and uh, and I you know I remember thinking back in those days, because a lot of the students that were around me in school, I was always seen as like this, 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 um, well, I was voted, I think actually I took second place, voted, you know, highest chance of being successful in business, right? And it was just because these students were watching me buy and sell and flip cars. And, and so that's, yeah, that's definitely kind of what I went into after sports cards was, was actual vehicles. Okay. And then yeah. did, was real estate next after that? Yeah. Real estate was next. Um, well, what happened first is I, you know, I, I had plans to go off to college after, after high school, I was actually going to go to ASU where my daughter now goes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but you know, the Lord had a different plan. And so I ended up getting my high school girlfriend pregnant. And so right after high school, I, I got married two months after high school 
and I went right into the workforce. I actually went into the worked in the floor and counter industry for the union. Oh wow! And the reason for that is because after three months there, you qualify for full benefit health benefits. insurance benefits, and so <laughs> yeah, it was my smart. way to pay for my baby that was on the way. Right. And so, but so I still had that desire. You know, here's the thing. So I was I was 19 when I did that, mm-hmm. and I remember to this day the guys that were, you know, drinking the union Kool-Aid, they're like, oh man, Cody, you got it made. I'm like, what do you mean I got it made? Man, you know, 20 years in and you're retired. So you're going to be, you're going to be 40 years old and retired. <laughs> and I, I remember just trying to work through that. And I came to the conclusion because I was miserable. I was <laughs> miserable. I'm like, why the hell? Would I want to be miserable for 20 years and some of my most prime 20 years? I mean, no thanks, right? I'm just not. And so, so what happened is as soon as I qualified for health insurance and had my baby, I bailed out of that union. And then I, I went to work for a private company and. And, and man, this, 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 this gentleman, and I still appreciate him today. Actually, I just had a call with him a week ago out of nowhere. I called him and I just, I just thanked him for giving me the opportunities he did. And uh, he just let me just go in there. And I was just hungry, driven, young, man. I failed in a lot of ways. Cause I was a workaholic, right? I failed my mm-hmm. family and I failed my, my hobbies and my health and my spirit. I mean, there's so many other, I ended day I failed, but man, I could, I was killing it. And so this guy, he allowed me when I got into that business, you know, they were maybe doing 70 grand a month or something. And what like was that. the business? It was in the floor and counter industry. Oh, okay. And counter. actually, before I tell you what I accomplished there, the so when I left the union, my father in law at the time had a little small flooring store. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted to go into sales with him. And and he's like, Hey Cody, you know, you really you can't sell until you're 25, just like my son, you know, he didn't start selling until he was 25. He really, I mean, you got to wait till you're 25. I'm like, Oh, hmm, okay. So I ended up going and doing like 20 interviews or whatever and landed at this place. And, and, and you're 19, right? I'm 19, I'm 20 now. And, uh, and this guy, man, he just, he saw something in me, which I so appreciate to this day. And that's why I called him the other day and I just thanked him. Hmm. And he just, man, he just kind of just pandered over to me and said, Cody, go. Like, go get it. And, you know, I was there five years and ended up running the business and turned it into a business that was doing about a million a month instead of 70 grand a month. And, and uh, so I kind of had this thing where I was going to install, which would make me a better uh, install flooring to make me a better salesperson. And then I was going to sell for a while, then become a manager and then manager to owner. And by the time I had kind of peaked out in that industry. I mean, I was making really good money in my young twenties mm-hmm. because I was paid on performance. And, you know, I, I looked at ownership in that industry and I just decided I was going to pass. And, and I had gotten to know a lot of, a lot of home builders and land developers cause they were all my clients. And mm-hmm. one thing led to another was networked. And in 2002, I, I, I jumped off that cliff, you know, I faced my fears and I just, I went for it. And so I've been in real estate ever since, since 2002, but you know, I'm going to, so, I'm going to, I'm going to, but I, if you don't mind, I want to share a humility story for a second related to my father-in-law at the time. So, yeah. you know, let's say a year after I was at that other company, 
he calls me one day and he's like, Hey Cody, you know, you need to get out of my backyard. I'm like, what do you mean? I need to get out of your backyard. He's like, dude, you're, you're taking, you're taking my customers, right? You're taking all these jobs. And cause we were both lived in the same town called Gresham, Oregon. And I'm like, well, okay. I said, but I mean, I thought I couldn't sell till I was 25 and, <laughs> and I was an egotistical little punk at that time. I call him two years later when I hear his business on the, is on the edge of going down and, and going bankrupt. And I call him and I said, Hey, all right, maybe I wrote him an email. I don't remember. And I said, Hey, just let you know, yes, I'm having all this success over here, but I care about you. I want to see your business succeed. And if, if you're willing to have me, I will drop everything I have here right now and I'll come to work for you. Yeah. And, and the guy never responded, never really? responded. And it was just because of lack of humility, right? He couldn't, he couldn't get him to a place, to a place of humility. And this was your father-in-law or something? Yeah, father-in-law at the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you know, there was a little undercurrent there. Cause you remember I got his daughter pregnant. So, and he was, he, <laughs> so there's a little bit of undercurrent in that relationship, but you know, just, you know, because of the lack of humility there, his business ended up going bankrupt and going under. And, and, you know, I think he's much more humble today, but just, man, humility is, there's so much freedom in humility. And, and so anyways, that's a humility story where, and you know, maybe he didn't want me to work for him back then. Cause man, I was a little shithead, but you know, it's just, it would be, yeah, that, that would be hard. And, and just for him being kind of the boss, but then you selling to the point where yeah. his business couldn't survive. Yeah. And then you come in and you, you're going to come in with the full ego of a 19, 20 year old person totally. at that time. 100%. That's, that would be, that would be, Maybe not humility as much as just survival. Yeah, <laughs> like right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. So it's, you know, it's been a journey. You know, I mean, no one says entrepreneurship's easy because I'll tell you it's not. Two, two questions for you there. So the gentleman that took you in really kind of served as a mentor to you. And I love that you reached out to him recently and said, you know, hey, I, I appreciate that. What, what are your thoughts on the importance of mentorship, how to find one, and then how you're given back in that area? Yeah. So I'm going to start off with, I never put a much value in it mm -hmm. until about three years ago. I just, I, I always would hide behind saying I'm an introvert. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I would never put myself out there or get under, I, I always said, oh yeah, no, I fly under the right radar. I kind of hide under rocks, you know, and, and it was just an excuse you know, because I didn't want to get uncomfortable and, but related to mentorship today, you know, I've really been seeking mentor mentorship in different ways. It's not necessarily just a one-on-one -on -one mentorship. I mean, there's different mastermind groups and things that I'm in that, mm -hmm. that I seek mentorship from groups of individuals. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you as far as my life, 100%, no questions asked. I've grown more in the last three years than I did the previous 18 years of my career. Mm -hmm. No questions asked. It's had a huge, huge, huge impact on me. What and, would you say um, are the biggest things you've gotten out of it? Um, and I'll say know, it not because, because, because I want it to be more, I want it to be more interesting than just the three things, but the three things that were the most surprising to you that you've yeah. out of uh, one would say is how many different ways there are to look at things than how I looked at them. Mm -hmm. 
right? We all have our blind spots. We all have the ways that we grew up, our life experiences that have channeled us to think or view things in a certain way. And just to be around different individuals that I admire, I respect, they inspire me. And just to allow them to speak into my life. And I'll tell you that I don't think I would have been able to get out of those relationships in the last three years, what I have, mm-hmm. unless I went into them with two main perspectives. One is that if I'm not willing to be authentic, transparent, vulnerable, these guys aren't going to be able to get to know the real me and be right. able to touch me the way that they possibly could. Mm-hmm. And two is going in with the mindset that I'm here to also give, right? I'm also mm-hmm. here to pour into their lives. And so going in and I'm still growing in that area, Roland, like, you know, I have, I've always had a big giving heart as far as giving financially and all that, like giving's mm-hmm. always been easy for me, but as far as giving of myself and giving of my time, that has been a process for me. And Vest mm-hmm. right's been a huge part of a break, me breaking mm-hmm. through that. But, but going in with the mindset that how can I give, how can I, how can I impact these guys? And so I don't really have just being transparent. I don't have like this mentor that's playing at a whole nother level than me. That's Mm -hmm. like that I meet with once a week or once a month that is holding me accountable, motivating me, inspiring me. I have more, more of the mastermind environment, which serves as mentorship. Even though I did recently for the first time ever, I hired an executive coach, which I'm super excited about. And the reason I did that is because this year I stepped into the visionary founder box of my companies right? and I brought in a CEO and man, I'm coming to realize I got a lot of things to work through, you know, handing over the, I've always been a big believer in empowerment and, you know, you know, letting your people do their thing. But I'll tell you what, when you hand over the reins of your business to a CEO, it is not easy. It is not easy. I'd love to drill down into that a little bit, because I think that's an excellent thing that you've done and something that a lot of entrepreneurs need to do and find it difficult. So how did you find that person? So it was just through a mutual contact. I interviewed a lot of different coaches over the last year. No, and I'm, not, I'm talking about the CEO, not the uh, CEO. Executive. Okay, the CEO. Well, it all started with in 2020 that I had just kind of this aha moment that my identity was my company and my company's identity was me. Right. And yeah, I've made a good living. I've made lots of money and I'm extremely blessed and thankful and all that. But at the end of the day, my company, I had a vision of what I wanted that company to be. And I had to humble myself and realize that I was the reason the company wasn't getting there. Mm -hmm. That I needed to separate my identity from the company and the company's identity from me. And in order for this company to scale across the country and do the things that we wanted to do based upon a very unique business model I had, I had to get out of the way. And when you come to the realization for your business to accomplish what you want, you have to get out of the way, man, it's, 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 it's an aha moment. And so the way I found that CEO is I went and hired a headhunter, you know, a recruiter Mm -hmm. and interviewed tons of people all across the country. But 
I established kind of this intense eight step process that I was going to put this person through because I've learned in past relationships, partnerships that, man, you know, we go do due diligence on our subdivisions, intricate, very detailed, you know, due diligence on these deals. Well, I need to be doing the same thing on a CEO or a partner, you know, just the value right. of due diligence. And so right. it was about a seven month process, but I finally got that CEO in place February of this year. And my, you know, I was in, I was in Portland, Oregon at the time, born and raised there. I just moved to Scotts September of last year. Well, my CEO's in Dallas, Texas. And so okay. relo relocated all of our staff to Dallas, Texas, opened a headquarters there. And I'll tell you another real humble story related to that. So I'm in, I'm the only one that's virtual remote. And I mentioned to my CEO about a month ago, I said, Hey, you know, I know you guys have joked around with me about buying a place in Dallas. And I said, straight up, do you want me to buy a place in Dallas? Do you want me to be in that office more? What? And he straight says, Cody, Nope, I don't want you in here. And, <laughs> and the realization is, is just as that visionary founder, I would disrupt the environment. Right. And and which is fine because I love living here in Scottsdale. I'll tell you this in, so since February's, my business has grown more this year than it has in the whole history of the business. That's great. We, we, we are, we're about five times bigger right now than we've ever been. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and so you said that there were some challenges in kind of having this transition from you're the, you're the boss, you're the CEO to this person. What, what are some of those that, that have been the most challenging and how have you dealt with them? Yeah. So my CEO, Scott, one thing he said to me, I'm going to say month after he started, he said, Cody, yes, you guys have gone and done a lot of great things and you know, your business does well, but Cody, you really, you don't have a business. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what do you mean I don't have a business? He said, you're really just a practitioner. You're like a doctor or a dentist or whoever, and you just have a bunch of admins around you. And, and, and as soon as he said it, it just clicked, it made total sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when you're the hub, when you're the center of your business and everything feeds off of you, every decision that's made and all of a sudden your CEO wants you out and go, stay in the visionary box and don't be in the trenches. And all of a sudden, all these decisions are being made without your involvement. A guy like myself, I, ha I have to challenge myself. I have to fight myself on this tendency to want to get involved because I feel like the result would be better if I was a part of it. Mm -hmm. and so yeah, it's just been a process to, to, to hand over those reins and to, to stay in my lane. At the end of the day, the best things I can do for the company is, is do what I'm supposed to do in that founder visionary box and that's it. But right. it's just, it just, it hasn't been easy. It hasn't, it, right. it, you, you, you know, it was my business. It was my baby. It was my identity. I was the hub. I was the practitioner for 20 years. And just to pull yourself out of that, it's, it's there, there's, there's, you know, there's challenges to it, but I'm committed to, to, to doing what's right for the business. Hey, Business Lunch listeners, we're going to get right back to the show. But Roland wanted me to invite you to a brand new training that he's doing on acquiring businesses with no money out of pocket. It's something that he's talked quite a bit about on the show, but he's doing a free training where he's going to walk through the entire process. So if you want to get access to that, go to businesslunchpodcast.com slash epic. That's businesslunchpodcast.com slash epic, and you can get signed up. 
That's really great. Now, your business now is actually one that I think is is really fascinating for people to think about that I don't think maybe they've thought about. Because so, you, on your own, and now you teach people how to do this too, and I know you've had some some cool success with it, basically acquire land, and, and my understanding, correct me where I'm wrong, get the entitlements, the zoning, if it needs to be a change or whatever, even create the lots and plat maps and then go forward. I'm not sure if you do water and sewer or what. And then you flip the, once you've done that to developers for pretty significant profits. Is, can you, is, is that close to right? Yeah, I'll fill in the blanks. So perfect. 2002. So first of all, what we do or what we teach really works for any asset class. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've done some apartment deals and whatnot. Like, I don't care if you're industrial, retail, multifamily apartments, residential, sing I don't care what it is. Mm -hmm. What we teach, you can really apply to any asset class. But in 2002, and since ever since then, all we do is off-market deals. I don't get involved in on-market deals. I'm not, I'm not interested in kicking you know, getting my teeth kicked in by the guy and him, you know, me kicking it. Like I, I just want nothing to do with it. And the you're reality not, is most loop net finding list. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just have no interest. <laughs> and here's the reality for the most part, any deal that goes on market, guys like me have already looked at it and passed because there's something wrong with it or it's they way overpriced. Right. <clears throat> exactly. And so we just don't, so we, we, you know, we're not using call centers and VAs and we have in-house acquisition people that cold call. And, and so we've done that ever since O2 is off market acquisition. So we teach, which is so valuable for so many guys in this space, because most guys are doing on market deals mm -hmm. and they're not in control of their own deal flow. I'm in control of my own deal flow. And so, you know, one of the most valuable things that I think in our course is teaching how to find these deals, how to analyze them, the things to look for, mm -hmm. and into where you can somewhat be in control of your own destiny and be in control of your deal flow and not be doing on-market deals where everybody's beating the hell out of each other. So we teach off-market acquisitions. We teach the entitlement process, the land use process, the political approval process. Mm -hmm. And that's where we stop our teachings, okay? And then we teach how to exit those deals once they're okay. approved, right? There's numerous exit strategies. So people understand. So basically, you're contacting owners of land yep. and the land has no development, no buildings to speak of. Maybe it's got right. something, but you're, there's a higher and better use for it. Yep. And so, so the entitlement process is typically referred to as zoning. For those of you who yep. don't know what entitlement is, that might, might help. And that entitles you to do to use the land for a certain purpose. That's why they call it that. So you're reaching out to owners of land where the land is not listed with the intent of find uh, of increasing the value through applying and getting a higher and better use generally, and then flipping that off to somebody else. Is that, yep. that's going to build it up, yep. right? So over our history, yeah, what we've done is we, we would get it entitled, we would develop it, we would then build the houses, and then we would sell a finished house. About, Lots of risk and expense there. Yeah, a bunch, about six, seven years ago, I quit building houses. And then I just started developing, putting in all the infrastructure and selling the finished lots to national publicly traded companies, right? Yep. Well, the last several years, I haven't even been developing the deals, putting in the infrastructure, the construction, because I don't need to. These home builders today need lots so bad 
what they will do, what the, the develop, there's risk in development, right? There's, you know, there's market risk, there's capital, all these things. And so what these guys will develop for, I won't touch with a 10 foot pole yeah. because they're so motivated for the finished lots. And so we've just yeah. been exiting at entitlements the last several years. And, you know, entitlements is like you said, it's zoning, but also part of the entitlement process is we'll get an actual project approved. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, so, and I, I'm not trying to offend anybody with this statement, but you know, a few of my buddies, which some guys, you know, they poke on me and they call me a wholesaler. Right. And, yeah. and, and I, and nothing against wholesalers. It's a fair model, but we're not wholesalers. And the reason we're not wholesalers, we're in the value add business. Right. Okay? We take a piece of raw land that's farmland or whatever, and we turn it into an approved subdivision. Yeah. Our average project, you know, let's just say our average project's a hundred lots right now. We invest about a half a million dollars into getting those entitlements, right? Show me wholesalers that put a half a million dollars into anything, right? Like, yeah. but so yeah, so as of lately, man, we we just get them through the entitlements and then we exit. Here's the thing, though: if if there's one thing, if if you're listening in the audience, if there's you can use it one thing from this interview, is is that if you're gonna go out there and pay development values for land, you've got to make sure it's a diamond, okay? Before you pay for the diamond, and what I mean by that. Is, is that if you're going to go out there and pay development values, you got to make sure it's developable. And it's not developable until it's entitled or approved. Okay, so we never, we never close on land until entitlements. Pure mm -hmm. and simple. If we're going to pay development values, we don't close until it's approved. And so with this business model, what happens is we, we're, a lot of times we're doing double closing, simultaneous closings. Taking my yeah. buyer's money, paying my seller, and making my scrape out of the middle. The only way you will ever see me close on a piece of dirt, like say in 30 days or whatever, much like a home transaction. And by the way, most real estate agents, that's how they think it works because mm -hmm. very few real estate agents understand my space is that I have no problem. I'll close right away, but understand now I'm looking at it as a land bank deal and I'm yep. going to pay you as is value as yep. whatever it's worth as farmland or whatever, which, mm -hmm. you know, on average is a lot of times like one tenth what I would pay you if you'll let me close after approvals or entitlements. And then, and which do you do more of? Do you, do I you definitely prefer? do the entitlement process more where I close after entitlements because here's the reality. Most sellers now we, but part of that Roland is because we're, we do some land banking, but it's just one offs. Now we are opening a land bank division next year. And so the ratios might change, but right now we're very focused on the entitlement model. That's what our fund is for. We have a fund called Allied Land Fund, and it's it's based on that entitlement model. And quite frankly, the sellers we're talking to, you know, they're willing to wait for the for the for the you know the phenomenal payday. So that's cool. And then, are you mainly doing these with option contracts? Is that kind of the the preferred method, or yeah? I mean, we call them we we call it a purchase and sale agreement. You know, you you could call it an option agreement and just change some verbiage, but it's basically so it's a purchase the same. agreement with an entitlement contingency. Then is that yeah? The, mm -hmm. That's okay. right. Yeah, great. That's yep. cool. And how long does that process usually take from when you Man, it's, contract with the seller? So you know, we were up in the Pacific Northwest, clear. You know, strictly from 02 to, you know, last year. And so now we're starting to do deals across the country all over. 
And man, it varies. It is it is unbelievable how much it varies across the country. And I'll tell you one thing I'm thankful for is I'm glad I cut my teeth up in the Pacific Northwest. Because if you can get deals approved in like, say, Portland Metro up in Oregon, there's so much bureaucracy, red tape, hoops you got to jump through. If you can get deals done up there, you can get deals done anywhere. Like That's so, true. but to answer your question, I would say it depends because you got to, you know, you got to pr- put your land use application together, you know, and, and, and that takes time and submit it and you got to get, so I would say on, I would say anywhere, depending on in the country, it's going to take six to six to, I mean, it varies a lot, six to 18 months. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so in your purchase contract, is there a sunset provision? Like, is there a firm time in addition to the approval entitlement vesting time or, or, or how do you, from a, how long is my contract when the seller asks that and you say, well, it's, it will close when we get entitlement. Is there any kind of time on that? I mean, most every deal we do, a seller will have their attorney review it. And so, you know, I can't think of the last time one of my contracts, I mean, they're always going to be redlined, right? Like the way an attorney proves his value so he can send you a bill is by redlining my contract. So, but I will tell you the way our standard process or what our PSA says is we have a 90 day due diligence period, inspection period, feasibility study, whatever you want to call it to really dive in, get our arms around the project, cross the T's, dot the I's. And then as far as closing, usually what it'll say is we'll close 60 days after entitlements Mm -hmm. or 12 months after expiration of our due diligence. But here's the key, whichever occurs later. Right. Oh, okay. Well, so then the time doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Very cool. That's awesome. So for people that might be interested in finding out more about this, because it's pretty cool and, and and we don't have the hours and hours to break it down that, that would be required. How do people get a hold of you? How do people find out more about this and, and think about maybe if this is something they would like to try themselves? Yeah. So I'm going to actually give you, I'm going to give you two things they can do or two places they can go. Okay. One is, you know, rolling for your audience. We have a lot of different things we're rolling out right now that we haven't put out to the public where I can't just send you a URL to go to. So sure. if people are really interested in learning more and get involved and potentially hearing about some of the different courses that we haven't released yet, I want them to email Cody, my name, C-O-D-Y, V-I-P at vestrite.com. Okay. So at vestrite, my shirt.com. Um, invest right just for those who are listening and not watching want to spell that because there's a couple ways yeah, you might spell it. it's v-e-s-t-r-i-g-h-t okay also i want to offer them a free gift so there's a they can go and and go to vestright.com slash land 101 and i have a free kind of ebook playbook there that they can they can download and I'm not going to guarantee this statement, but I wish I could is they'll probably learn more about my space and that free gift than they've ever learned in their lifetime related to my niche. Okay. That's great. So it's well worth it. What was the website URL? Yeah. So it's vestrite. So V E S T R I G H T dot com slash land one Oh one. Great. That's awesome. 
That's cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us today. And I'm, I'm excited to learn more about your funds and that kind of stuff too. So we'll, we'll have to continue to chat. Let's do it, man. Roland, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. You've been listening to Business Lunch with Roland Frazier. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by subscribing and leaving a review. And for more information, go to businesslunchpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. What if three days could change the course of your business in 2023? Get Scalable Live is where you'll gain great clarity on the next steps that will help you create the business, life, and wealth you deserve. Connect with business owners and entrepreneurs just like you, hungry for advice, proven strategies, and necessary connections to grow a business. Literally, million-dollar conversations are happening in the hallways, in the bathrooms, across tables. Get Scalable Live at Fairmont Austin, November 2nd through 4th. Tickets are on sale now at GetScalableLive.com.